All right, if you have your Bibles, uh, grab your Bibles or grab a Bible in front of you and turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Turn on your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. And in light of what Christ has done for us, in light of what the table pictures or what the table points to or what the table represents, in light of the grace and the forgiveness and the righteousness we have received by faith when we believe in Jesus Christ because of the work of Christ, Christ's death in our place for our sins, this morning what I want to do is talk about your future. Now, and a part of that is because graduation is in the air. Uh, some of you have recently graduated. Some of you are going to graduate today. We're having a graduation here in this room in just a few hours a little later today. And we want to say to you graduates, congratulations. Uh, we are proud of you. We are excited for you. And this morning I want to speak to you graduates. But part of this uh, orientation towards the future today is because of the teams we are sending out this summer and the future potential, the future ministries that will take place as these teams go across the street or around the world to lift up Jesus Christ. Uh, but the main reason for this future orientation today is because of our passage. We're working our way through this series on Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and today we come to a critical passage. And let me give you the context so you'll appreciate what's happening here. Here in Mark chapter 12, we are just two, maybe three days from Jesus' crucifixion. Really just hours. This is the most, hands down, the most difficult, stressful period in Jesus' earthly ministry. And as every hour goes by, it seems like more and more of the world is increasingly turning against Jesus becoming anti-Jesus. And here, in this context, in the midst of the turmoil and the stress, Jesus makes two incredible statements. Two statements that have nothing to do with the future on the one hand because they're not prophecy. But on the other hand, they have everything to do with the future because they're commands. And here in these two statements, these two commands, Jesus puts his finger on the two most important, the two most foundational principles in all of life. And if you and I can say yes to these, if we can embrace these, if we can adopt these, if we can organize our lives around these two principles, they will totally change our futures. And make our future something incredible, something beautiful, something literally out of this world. And they will keep us from living a life of regrets, dead ends, and pain. So we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 12 and verse 28. This is one of the most important passages in the Gospel of Mark. Because here Jesus reveals his Two dreams for you and for me. Verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, 
which is the most important. Now Matthew, in his parallel account, uh, tells us this man who was a Pharisee, he was a scribe, he was an expert in the law, came to test Jesus. He came to expose Jesus, to nail Jesus. Now there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. That is in the first five books of the Old Testament, what we call the Torah. 248 of those are positive. 365, one for each and every day of the year, are negative. The rabbis, and this guy was a rabbi, this guy's coming to Jesus as a rabbi, uh, differentiated between the heavier or the weightier commandments. And they were called heavier or weightier because they had heavier or weightier consequences if you disobeyed him. And the lighter commandments. Actually, we see this, we hear Jesus speaking to this differentiation way back in the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus says in one of the passages, if anyone um, breaking one of the least of these commandments, one of the least of these commandments, and when Jesus says least of these commandments, he's talking about the lighter side, the lighter commandments that had lighter consequences. All that to say, here this scribe is coming to Jesus and saying, which of the 613, which of the two main categories, heavy lighter, is the most important? And look at what Jesus, Jesus says beginning in verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now in the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you go back to that parable, uh, Jesus broadens in that parable the rabbinic definition of a neighbor. So here when Jesus says, um, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, Jesus is now defining neighbor as not just a Jew, but anyone around you. Regardless of ethnicity, regardless of sociodemographic considerations, regardless of geography. Your neighbor is anyone. Let's pick it up in verse 32. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, do not let the simplicity of Jesus' answer, I mean, this is a very familiar passage. We kind of look at it and say, oh, oh yeah. Uh, don't let the simplicity of, of Jesus' answer fool you. Because what Jesus has just said is incredibly profound. Actually, it's incredibly complex. Because what Jesus has done is dis distilled 
the entire Old Testament law, all 613 uh, commandments, into just two. And the first commandment that Jesus quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, in verses 29 and 30, uh, describes how we are to relate to God. It's a vertical in its orientation. And it summarizes basically the first half of the uh, Ten Commandments. Uh, the second commandment Jesus cites here from the Old Testament, which is recorded in verse 31 from Leviticus chapter 19, is more horizontal in orientation, and it describes how we're to relate to one another. And that summarizes really the, the second half of the Ten Commandments. There are no more important commandments, no more important principles or values or concepts or constructs in life than these two. Abraham Lincoln, and I'm a student of Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln used to talk about the problem, especially in politics, of being all shell and no egg. All shell and no principles. All showy and flashy and no substance. And frankly, the only reason... America survived the Civil War was because Abraham Lincoln was just the opposite. He was all egg and a kind of awkward shell. Here, Jesus tells us how we can avoid being all shell, no egg. Here Jesus tells us what the egg is. And you graduates, boy, do I want you to get this. I want all of you to get this. Now, I, I'm going to take these two commandments one at a time, and I, I, I'm going to state them in, in terms of... Uh, a principle relative to the future because if we get these, if we adopt these, if we embrace these and we calibrate our lives accordingly, our futures are going to be very different, very different. So here we go, number one. In light of the first commandment, verses 29 and 30, your future will be a function of, of your love for God. Your love for God. When you come to the end of your life, uh, when, when your life is over, there will be nothing more important than the extent to which you have given yourself to loving God. Jesus knows this. Jesus makes this his first point by going back to Deuteronomy 6 and verses 4 and 5 and quoting the great, what we call Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for here. It's how this passage, this Old Testament quote in Hebrew, or Deuteronomy 6 begins. This is one of the most revered passages in all of the Old Testament. Pious Jews quote from memory he, uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. In the morning and the evening, every day, they've been doing that for thousands of years. Central passage to Judaism. 
Jesus is saying the Shema is the greatest commandment. And I want you to know, Jesus is not denying the Old Testament. He is clarifying it. He is distilling it. He is summarizing it. Now I want you to see two things relative to this first command, this first principle. And the first thing I want you to notice is Jesus starts with the divine side. Jesus spends time, the Shema spends time describing who God is, a brief description of who God is, because Jesus knows something we must not forget, and that is loving God starts with being captivated by who God is. What does it mean to love God? Well, for starters, it means we're captivated by who God is. That's the point of verse 39. That's the point of this brief statement that begins the Shema that Jesus quotes here. Jesus knows that you can't uh, love God apart from knowing God. That if you, um, the more you know God, the more you will love God. And to love God is to give yourself, to discipline yourself in, in life. To know God. To discover increasingly who God is. So here in this first verse we have this mix, uh, this beautiful mix uh, of God's grace and God's sovereignty. In verse 29, a mix of the love of God and the transcendence of God. And let me show you that. When Jesus says, the Lord our God, he is pointing to the grace of God. He is pointing to the love of God. He is pointing to the mercy of God. He's pointing to the faithfulness of God. Uh, he is, is saying, uh, it is God who has chosen to freely establish us in a covenant relationship. He has chosen to freely establish a covenant relationship with sinful fallen people like you and me, who he will redeem, who he will protect, who he will lead, who he will transform, who he will make whole. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is a statement of God's matchless, one-sided grace. It's a statement of, of God's willingness to enter into a relationship with people who don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. It's a statement of God's commitment to restore what has been destroyed in the fall. So every day when Israel a couple times a day would say, yeah, the Lord our God, or when you and I say, God, my God, or uh, our God, we are assuming grace. We are announcing grace. The only way God can be our God is because he has taken the initiative in forming a relationship with us. What this means is that in verse 29, the Shema is saying something profound, uh, something that I don't want you to miss. Because in verse 29, what Jesus is saying is God never, ever stops working for you. Never stops working for you. Now tonight, you'll go to bed and you'll sleep. Sometime before then, during the course of this day, you'll forget all about God. But God never forgets about you. God never sleeps. God will never, ever stop working for you, stop caring for you, stop leading you, stop guiding you, stop blessing you. And when you wake up in the morning, it starts all over again. He is our God. 
He will never, ever stop working for you. Not because of anything in you, not because you merit it or deserve it. I certainly don't. But because he has chosen in his grace to make you his child. To call you into a relationship through the table, through what Christ has done. To forgive, to cleanse, to make you righteous. And God will not be satisfied until everything is exactly as he meant it to be. Now there's more. Uh, Look at the end of verse 29. The Shema adds, the Lord is one. This is Israel's great statement of monotheism. That God is the one and only God. And it points to the sovereignty, the unity, the transcendence. Uh, uh, the holiness of God. There are not thousands of gods and goddesses like the surrounding nations taught. There is one God who subsists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Because God is one God, God is single-minded. Not simple-minded, single-minded. Because God is one God, God is focused. God is undivided. Because God is one God, God will bring his purposes, his plans to pass. And God will not rest until everything in this physical world and all of us in it are delivered from the sinful effects of the fall. Now think about this. I know you're busy. I know you have a lot going on in your life. I have a lot going on in my life. I'm busy. But whether you're 18 and you've just graduated, or you're 80 and you're thinking about graduating to heaven, you cannot cannot give yourself to, to loving God unless you give yourself to knowing God. Uh, Knowing the attributes, the character, the ways, the word, the the purposes, the promises uh, of God. And here in one line, uh, the first line, verse 29 of the great Hebrew Shema. God points us to God. And here in this very short verse, we have captured both the grace of God, our God, And the sovereignty of God. He is one. And only one. Now you graduates, hear me. Track with me. Artists today talk about the problem of visual lethargy. Or visual uh, laziness. It's the problem of the more you see something, the less you see it. So, the first time you drive to, say, your girlfriend's house, when you turn and you're on her street, because it's the first time, man, you're going to notice everything. You're going to notice her house. You're going to notice what's in, in the front. But by the 20th time you drive, you're not going to notice anything. And people are hoping you don't have an accident. You're just unaware You have quit seeing because you have become familiar. It's visual lethargy, laziness. 
Now, I say this because the great risk to your future is that you will become bored with God. You will take God for granted. You will lose your awe of God. Jesus has come. It's the table to give you your awe of God back. And this awe of God, this love for God, this living vertically, it is designed to rule every domain of your existence. Starting with your relationship with your girlfriend. So note the sequence here in, in, in the Shema. I mean, it would be real easy for me as a pastor just to go right to love God and just call you to, to love God and, and to miss verse 29. I, I don't want to do that. The future belongs to those who have a deep love for God, to those who delight in God. But a deep love for God is born in an understanding of who God is, living in light of His grace, living in light of His sovereignty. And it's a, a sturdy, I, I mean sturdy, uh, strong, firm, joyful, expressive recognition of who God is. Because you and I need someone bigger than ourselves. You graduates, you need someone bigger than yourself. You need to live for a glory bigger than your own glory. And it's really tempting along the way just to focus on ourselves, on our preferences, on what we want. And the Shema... And the point of verse 29 is don't do that. We begin with who God is, what he has done for us. And frankly, the first line of verse uh, 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 of the Shema ultimately points to the table, ultimately points to the gospel, to, to the cross. So uh, your life, isn't ultimately so much about what you must do. It's more about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ and you choosing to live in light of that by faith. All right, I'm going to move on. Your future will be a function of your love for God. Your love for God. But loving God starts with being captivated by who God is, his grace, his love, his mercy, his holiness. And that's the first point. The second thing we see here is that loving God is responding to, uh, is responding with all that you are to all that God is. Now we're moving from verse 29 to verse 30. And what I want you to note is when we come to this commandment, this first commandment, this greatest commandment, it's all about the heart. It's all about the soul. It's all about what's going on inside of us. Uh, our, our values uh, that, that we might value and delight in God over and above everything else in life. Uh, loving God is responding with all you are to all God is. I mean, look at the verse. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, then he concludes with all your strength. Any one of those four terms refers to the whole person. And when you put them all together and add the adjective all, 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 what Jesus is doing is emphasizing the totality of our allegiance, our affection, our worship, our love for God. You see, God doesn't want just a piece of you. God wants all of you. God doesn't just want you for an hour or two on a Sunday. God wants you 24-7. Love the Lord your God with all, with all, with all, with all. Now, Rather than kind of describing this and defining this, what I want to do is illustrate this. And I want to go back to the Old Testament. And I, I want to look at a couple illustrations of what this loving God is like by looking at a couple people in the Old Testament. I'm going to look just at two. And I want to start with David. Because I want you to understand when Jesus says, Love God, what Jesus is saying is be passionate about God like David was passionate about God. Let me show you that. Look at this one verse from Psalm 63. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to begin a series, a summer series on the Psalms, and this is the first Psalm I'm going to start with because it's so beautiful. But look at this verse. David says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, David is in a bad place. David is in the Judean wilderness, hence no water. He is running for his life from King Saul. And David is in deep weeds. But notice David's spiritual resilience. Actually, notice his passion, his language. Earnestly I seek. My soul thirsts. My body uh, longs. I I incredible. Incredible uh, statement of, of David's passion. David was David. Because of his passion for God, because of his and commitment to pursue God. And so when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all, 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 Jesus is saying, have an unquenchable, unquenchable passion for God, just like David did. And I want to say to you graduates, your future is a function of your passion for God. And may Psalm 63, verse 1, be your story. Uh, David here uh, demonstrates that this passion for God is, is understanding that your life does not, at the end of the day, belong to you. It belongs to God. It's understanding that left to yourself, you're always, always going to color outside the lines. It's understanding that... Um, Apart from God's miraculous intervention, you are, are desperate, needy, and destitute. 
Uh, but our, our problem today isn't just that we are dissatisfied people, and, and we are dissatisfied people. Our problem today is also that we are too easily satisfied. And so what do we do? We settle for an externalistic form of Christianity that lasts for about an hour or two a week. Just an hour here, an hour there. But as gifted as David was, he knew he desperately needed God. David was not easily satisfied. So he passionately pursues God. Loving God. What is loving God? Well, one of the things loving God is, it means you passionately pursue God. The second thing I want to say, let's go to Joseph. One of the reasons I, I, I love Joseph is because one of the great lessons we learn from the life of Joseph is that loving God means saying no to sin, turning from sin. Killing sin before sin kills you. Now all of us will be tempted by sin. All of us are tempted by sin every day and sometimes in ways we don't even understand. But loving God is saying no to sin despite what you desire, despite what you feel, despite how attractive it looks. So let me show you this passage from Genesis 39. This is about sexual temptation. And frankly, for you graduates, I can't think of a more important passage to illustrate this point. Now notice how this begins. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. I say this all the time, sort of like me. I say that in humility. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his, well, wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Now keep that up there. Keep that slide right there. Amazing passage. You graduates, boy, do I want you to get this. Do I, do I want you to grab this. I want all of you to get this. Because what we see here, now, now follow me in this, is your future will be a function of your ability to say no despite what you desire. And your ability to say no will be a function of of your vision of the holiness of God. So look at the second line. Joseph says, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph said no to Potiphar's wife because of his vision of the holiness of God. It was a vision thing. It was rooted in his knowledge of God. Loving God means obeying God, like Joseph here. But in the trenches... When no one else is around, your willingness to obey God will be rooted in your vision of the character of God, specifically the holiness of God. How can I do this? How, how, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Who in the world says that today? 
in this sex-crazed culture of ours? Who in the world says, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? I'll tell you who. People who love God. Students. Adults who love God, who have a vision of the holiness of God. Now, I could go on and uh, look at other passages in the Old Testament and say loving God is praying like Daniel prayed or standing strong in adversity like Job or uh, loving God's word, eating God's word like uh, Jeremiah or... um, Staying humble uh, like Moses. But you get the point. And really all these are the spokes. And the hub, the hub is this internal calibration, this heart disposition, this affection, this longing from your heart for God. And it's an unwavering desire to exalt the living God. Not that you're going to be perfect. None of us are going to be perfect. But I want to tell you, and you grads hear me, This is the only future that matters. The only future that matters. Now briefly, let's go to the second principle. I'm just about out of time. Now the second principle based on the second commandment that is found in verse 31 here in our Mark 12 passage, and and it's a quote, Jesus is quoting here Leviticus 19, 18, and here's the principle. Your future will be a function of your commitment to love others. Your future will be a function of your commitment to love others. This is verse 31. And I read this and I think, man, this sounds so easy, but the reality is it's so hard. And then I ask myself the question, why is it so hard? And I realize loving others is so hard because it demands that you understand that you are not the king. That life ultimately isn't about you. But you are an ambassador of the king. You are an agent of the king. You are a a, a servant of the, the king of kings who has called you to spend your life serving others, giving to others, pointing others to Jesus Christ. Just amazing. And what this means, if you think about it, if you're willing to say yes to this, is that life is ministry and ministry is life. Let me say that again. If we really believe this second commandment, then what we will do is we will understand and we will live in such a way that life is ministry and ministry is life. Because loving others requires a ministry mentality. Now, that doesn't mean we all have to become pastors. But it does mean wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whatever trip we're taking, whatever God calls us to this summer, whether it's at the office or at school or on a vacation or a mission trip or a neighborhood Bible club or when we work at the hospital or wherever we are, it means that we see people as made in the image of God who desperately need the Son of God. And we honor them. We serve them. We point them to Christ. And this ministry orientation requires clarity on our part. Because it's way too easy to look right at profound needs and not see them. 
and to move past them and to move beyond them. And it requires commitment. It requires that we organize our life in such a way that we have time for ministry. We have time to serve other people. That we can't just say, I am, you know, sorry, too busy. One of the great things I look forward to about being in heaven is we're not going to hear people say ever again, how are you? I'm busy. We're not going to hear people say, I'm busy. People will give themselves to unbridled worship and, and un, unbridled love. And that's the second commandment. How is it that the God of the universe, the King of kings, the creator of all that is, the creator of the cosmos, who names every star, how is it that he would place his name on us? How is it that he would choose to make us agents of reconciliation and redemption? And friends, uh, friends, no matter how much money you make, no matter how much worldly success uh, you achieve, there is nothing, there is nothing that compares with the surpassing privilege of loving God and serving others. This is Jesus' dream for you. This is our future. Let's pray. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. And now, Father, as we prepare to take the offering, as we prepare to worship you out of this passage, out of this grace, we ask that you would continue to speak to us, that you would continue to teach us, And we thank you that we can now give to you because you have so profoundly given to us in your Son. And we thank you that this giving makes going and sending possible. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.